So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Symbolit the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Good morning. Welcome to Regeneration. If you're a first-time visitor here, we just go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and so you happen to be here at a time where we're wrapping up chapter 2 of Nehemiah here. Let me pray for us as we uh, get started here. God, thank you so much for your word. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us this morning exactly to where each person is at to need to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we witnessed the favor Nehemiah received from God, how God worked in King Artaxerxes' heart so that the king listened to Nehemiah and blessed him. He blessed him with travel papers and with resources, time off, and a military escort to go to Jerusalem and to rebuild this wall. And we noticed how Nehemiah invested into the spiritual work nearly two, three times more than he did the actual physical work because we can tell by Nehemiah 1.1 and Nehemiah 2.1 that in that time span is about 90 to 120 days. And when we look forward into Nehemiah, we see that the wall was rebuilt in 52 days. And so this morning we pick up in verse 11. This is after Nehemiah has traveled an 800-mile journey from Susa to Jerusalem. We have a slide here that's showing you this route that he took. So Susa was the winter capital for King Artaxerxes. That's where he made his capital during the winter. And you can see this route that they took was around the Fertile Crescent. The reason why they would do this is so that they wouldn't run into problems of the lack of water or the lack of roads or the lack of the protection of the Persian Empire, that they'd have to follow this route. So this is the route they went. And so here we are, verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. I found this kind of uh, fascinating that they would mention this. Why was he there for three days? I mean, does this even make any sense at all that he would even put this in here? Because, you know, he's gone through this period of weeping and mourning fasting and praying for four months. You go through this really scary time with your king because he sees that you're sad and you don't know if that means like it's your death sentence because if the king doesn't like your attitude, you're gone. 
and yet he gets this incredible favor and the king blesses him and gives him this favor and helps him trek this 800 miles to finally get to the destination and he's finally in Jerusalem and then you kick back after all that I mean don't you think someone would be like really excited chomping at the bit to get to work but no this is not what Nehemiah does and we recall that Nehemiah received this vision from God but the thing is what was Nehemiah's background He's a cupbearer. What does a cupbearer know about rebuilding walls, rebuilding a city? He's not a civil engineer. He's not a city planner. He's not an architect. He's not a military general. He's none of those things. So he needs to slow down from jumping into the project because he doesn't have any experience with all of this stuff. He needs to relax. He needs to rest. He needs to be with the Lord, and that's exactly what he does. So during this Three days, it's a time for Nehemiah to gather himself, to reset himself, which is something that many of us in the Bay Area are not accustomed to doing. Many of us here, we don't rest very well. We don't pause very well. And I confess to you, as I confessed last week, that I have a sin of pride. I also confess to you this week that I don't observe Sabbath very well. My nine-year-old daughter brought this up to me. She brings this up to me about every three years. So I remember when she was three years old and I'm working and stuff and she climbed on my lap and she grabbed my face and she was like, Daddy, you work too much. <laughs> that was when she was three. Now that she's nine, we're walking up the stairs and she was like, so Dad, have you heard of a Sabbath? <laughs> so you see how they evolve. I'm waiting to hear what she's going to say when she's 12 and 15 because I think it's going to be a little bit more sarcastic. And so... I really, really, really try to take Saturdays off. I really try to rest on Saturdays, but I confess to you, it probably happens about once a month. I'm not good at this, and it's probably an issue that is not just me. I think a lot of you are probably in the same boat because in the Bay Area, we're just driven to work. That's what we do. I see a lot of wives like nodding their head, right? That's what we do. And before we take on a challenging project, it's really important to rest up. Have you guys heard of tapering for athletes? You know, athletes, before they enter into a really important competition like the Olympics or a championship or something like that, it's really important for them not to overtrain. Like the Spurs last year who won the championship, they're a really old team. They just kind of like phase off. They taper before they enter into playoffs, before they enter into championship games because they don't want to overtrain. They want to be at an optimal performance when they compete. And so it's really important for us to reset to retune as we see what's ahead for us now what happens when we overtrain or we overwork well you're prone to injury if you overtrain and if you overwork you're prone to make mistakes and so as we overtrain and as we overwork it's just not a good time to enter into competition so when we work we're not at our best so it's probably not the best time to enter into that really important project we just don't make our best decisions when we're fatigued. And it's important to recognize who's in control of our life. You know, oftentimes we overwork, we don't rest because we think that it falls on us, that this project, that this organization, that this whatever, it falls on us, and we lose sight of who's really in control, God. And so this is what a day of rest allows us to recognize, that the world doesn't revolve around our work. 
or our efforts. And sure, we put our best effort into the things that are really important to us, but we really have to think through the costs and the sacrifices we make when we don't rest. We are admitting that God is not in control. We put our own health at risk. We put our relationships at risk with our spouse, with our children, with our friends, with our family. We simply can't give our best when we're not at our best. So during these times of fatigue, it's not a good time to make really important decisions for your life. And that's why we say things like, you know, sleep on it. You know, sleep on that. Before we make really important decisions, because we need to recalibrate, we need to rest, we need to hold off on those conversations that we might regret having because we weren't rested to kind of filter the words that are coming out of our mouth, or we need to hold off on sending that email because we might regret after we just press enter and it heads off or send that, oh, that's not what I meant. But it's too late, right? It's gone. So we need to hold off on those important decisions. Give yourself some time to rest and seek God. See, when we run on fumes, it's not a time to race. It's a time to refuel. And if you don't, you'll just break down and it affects every aspect of your life. And so he says, so I went to Jerusalem and I was there three days. Just a, a really important principle to keep in mind before making really big decisions in your life. And then he goes into something in verse 12. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. Why is Nehemiah so secret about this? Now, I think part of it has to do with spiritual disciplines, actually. See, God put into Nehemiah's heart what he was to do for Jerusalem. And when he found out the great trouble and shame that Jerusalem was facing, his reaction was to mourn and to weep. Then he continued fasting and praying before God. He rested three days in Jerusalem. All of these are spiritual disciplines, fasting, praying, resting. And then notice what these next disciplines are. Because I think Nehemiah is drawing closer to God here. And so he starts to enter into this time of solitude and silence with the Lord. See, I believe Nehemiah had a really close relationship with God, and this is something that God called him to. And I think Nehemiah went up with a few men, but essentially, this is by himself, to re-examine what the Lord called him to do in this rebuilding project. And it was a time for him to re-examine his motives, to re-examine his leadership, to survey what God had called him to do. Because we know that him entering the city wasn't a secret thing. How can it be a secret thing when you bring enough resources with you to rebuild a wall and a military escort? I mean, they've seen this from miles away, just this cloud of dust, right, coming like, who's attacking us? What's going on here? This is no secret that he's entering into the city. The secret is they didn't really know why he was there. Like, is this a stop? Is he going on? Like, what's going on? That they didn't know. And so Nehemiah enters into this time where he's just seeking the Lord's timing. God led him to this place. God told him what he was going to do, who he needed, where he was going, how he was going to go about doing it, why he was going to do it. And here's where I believe Nehemiah was waiting for when. You told me all this other stuff, God. Now you tell me when. And God would reveal to him when he was going to reveal these plans to everybody else. I also think that this was a time for Nehemiah to consider his own leadership. He's a cupbearer. And so the second part of verse 12 here, it says, There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. 
why is that even there? What's the big deal about an animal? Why mention the animal that there's no other one except the one that he rode? Go back into your kind of movie scenes and things like that. Who rides on animals and who follows and walks? Leaders are usually the ones that ride on animals, right? And those who follow usually walk, don't they? This is a historically accurate portrayal of what's happening in those caravans in movies. And so this was the case here where Nehemiah rode on the animal while the others walked. It's a clear indication of who was leading this expedition. And I don't think it took very long for Nehemiah to realize, I need God because I'm a cupbearer and I have no idea what's next. I don't know what to do here. I just know that God sent me here. I know he gave me all this stuff. I know he brought with me all these people and all these resources, but I don't know what's next. And so sure, God put it into his heart what he was to do for Jerusalem, but Nehemiah's heart would have to rely on God. People were going to question Nehemiah's motives. They were going to question his leadership, his ability, his experience. They were going to question all of those things, which is something that happens to all of us, isn't it? Every single one of us. Don't people question our motives? They question our leadership. They question all these different things about us. And the thing is, they should. People should. Because who are we? We're sinful people who are fallible. We are imperfect people. So of course, people question. But the thing is, God knows the heart. And though some of you may feel disheartened at times in your various respective leadership roles, when you know that God put it into your heart to do, and you fill in the blank there, to do whatever that is, for, you fill in that blank, for whoever, whatever it is, you can rest in that. You can rest in that. You think about this. Even when God sends you, God himself sends you. You're confronted with opposition and obstacles. You look at all the prophets in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, all of them. All of them question about their motives, their leadership, their character, whatever it may be. Jesus, God himself, was questioned. If God himself was questioned by imperfect people, don't you think imperfect people will be questioned by imperfect people? It happens. Everyone has an opinion. Everyone has a critique. Everyone has feedback. How are we going to deal with it? How do we deal with it? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3-5. through 5. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive the commendation from God. People question everything, especially here. Especially here, which is something that I absolutely love about the Bay Area, while at the same time something that really bugs the heck out of me. If our well-being, our emotional state is so influenced by what others think, we're not going to be all that spiritually, mentally, or emotionally healthy, are we? If compliments can put you so high 
and negative criticisms can put you so low that we are allowing other people to dictate who we are. And if this is the case, where is your identity in Jesus Christ? See, we need to be secure in our identity in Jesus Christ so that when people praise you, your head can still fit through that door. And when people disapprove of you, you don't have to be peeled off the floor. You are so loved by God. You are so valued by God. Your value does not change ever. So when people question your motive or your leadership, your character, whatever else they question about you, it needs to go back to what God put into your heart to do. You fill in the blank for you fill in the blank. It needs to go back to that. Nehemiah had an awesome job. I would love his job. He was totally set. He lived so comfortably in the king's court. But then God called him to do something in Jerusalem. And this may be some of you. You're really secure at where you're at. You can travel when you want to travel. You can buy what you want to buy. You can do whatever you want to do. There is nothing holding you back in terms of material resources or anything like that. I need to warn you about something, though. A really dangerous place for any of us to be is to be set in our ways. This is what it is. I'm not going to change. This is what I'm going to be. Because what this does is it's telling where your heart is with God. Because if God were to put something in your heart to do that is outside of you being set, are you not going to do it then? Are you not going to do it? What has God called you to do and you haven't done it yet? I have a question for everyone. How many of you are actually from Oakland? You're from Oakland. Less than 7% of you, right? My wife is one of these Oaklanders, like hardcore. She bleeds green and yellow and stuff like that. But the vast majority of you were sent here for a purpose. You were sent here. You're not from here. Over 90% of you are not from here. This is a place with great trouble and shame. This is the most dangerous place in all of California. I don't know if you realize this. Nationwide, we're number three. We moved up from number one to number three. What has God put in your heart to do here? Because you're here. You're here. You're here already. It is not an accident that you are part of a church in Oakland. God put you here. God put into my heart to do for Oakland just like He did for many of you. Your very presence here proves you're here for a purpose. Because it's not a coincidence that you're here. We are here together as a church for a reason. God brought us here together. What has He put on our collective heart to do for Oakland? Let me propose something of why we're here. Because I think it boils down to these two things. Discipleship and evangelism. That's what it boils down to. You know, we have all these other things, these social justice things, all this other stuff. We have a church here, but I think it boils down to this. This is what we're doing here as a church. We are building up and we are multiplying. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up 
and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. You see, we build followers of Jesus up. Discipleship. And we multiply evangelism. This is our hope throughout every single ministry in our church. We desire for people to be built up in their faith and then to multiply, to grow in your faith as a follower of Jesus and then to share that faith with others. Now back to Nehemiah here in verse 13. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered into the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. We have a slide of all these locations that he's bringing up here. And you can see by the map that Nehemiah started out on the southwest side of the city. Right, this is the valley gate. He headed south, the king's pool, and he went around the city walls until he returned to his starting point. Now, why did he survey this wall by himself? I shared that it might have been a time of solitude, a time of silence with the Lord. Boom, and the Lord delivered. Okay. I also think that this was a time for him to gain this unbiased perspective of the wall's condition. To see for himself the condition of this perimeter here. See, sometimes we listen to people too much. And he could have just heard it from his brother and not really have known, like, is it really that bad or not that bad? And so I think he needed to really see for himself to make a personal assessment of what was going on. And so how do we apply this to ourselves? I think it's when people say, you know, it's not that bad. Or that sin is really not a sin because, you know, you guys love each other. Or for whatever reason, they justify the sin. See, we need to look into that ourselves. We need to look into that brokenness ourselves. How do you do that? Use the Bible. What does the Bible say about what you're dealing with? Otherwise, you are prone to deceive yourselves, thinking that something is fine or that something is even good when indeed it is broken and it needs repair. Your relationship with the Lord needs repair if you're in sin. There's no justifying it. See, we need to see for ourselves what is off within ourselves so that it can be repaired. What's off in our relationship with God, with other people? God reveals those things, and a way to confirm these revelations is through His Word. His Word does not contradict the Spirit, so what are the broken parts of your life that need to be looked at a little closer to be honest with that brokenness and to bring that before God for repair? And while you do this for yourself, there are people in your life that also need your help in kind of that surveying of brokenness. If you have children, take your children for example. Those suckers are sinful, aren't they? Those are sinful critters. But sometimes we look on them as like they have halos. Oh, they're so sweet. There's nothing but No, they're bad. They're naughty. Those are bad kids. And if you don't tell them and correct them, you're doing a disservice to them. If you as a loving parent don't help them see the broken parts of their life, who will? Who will? 
And if all of them have this sense of goodness, which is false, that they're good, you're hurting them. You're hurting them. Same thing when you're looking at your spouse or your business or some relationship that's important to you, your church. We all need an honest survey of our condition and the broken parts need to be repaired. God wants to repair our brokenness. But we need to be able to see that brokenness for what it is and to identify and not fool ourselves thinking that it's not something that it actually is. See, Nehemiah gave this honest look at the condition of the wall and after seeing it for himself, he knew he needed help. He knew it was bad. After seeing what God led him to see and seeing for himself what was broken, then he started reaching out. Verses 17 and 18. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been put upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. I wonder if these guys were really able to see the amount of trouble that they were actually in. Because I really doubt it. Because this was nothing new. Jerusalem and its walls, they've been in this condition for over 150 years by the time Nehemiah speaks to these guys in verse 17. It's been like this. And I think Nehemiah brought to their attention how bad things really were. And he kind of woke them up from their derision. I think this is something that Oakland kind of needs. That people have been here for so long, they just kind of, it's like this. It's been like this for decades. And they need the perspective of people to come in and say like, no, this is not right. You guys need to wake up from this. See, sometimes people are in such a funk that they don't know how funky they are. And they need a prophet to come in and bring to attention how bad things really are, to wake them up from this disdained state, to speak truth into their life. And this is what it was like in Jerusalem. Years of derision. Years of people making a mockery of them. Just a state of being derided. They were so used to being in this sorry state. I wonder if our city is like this. Because every conference I go to, I have the thing that says where we're from, Oakland, Stefan, Steve and I, we're all that stuff. We're walking around and people look and they're like, you're from Oakland? <laughs> they're like, take a step back. I like, go, what? Are you packing? You bet I am. You better get away from me. <laughs> packing my business cards. Like, but this is kind of like something that we're dealing with in our city. See, a leader needs to be able to tell them that you're in trouble. You're in trouble, and I'm here to be part of the solution. I'm not here to just tell you that you're in trouble. See, Nehemiah wasn't there just to complain and do nothing. Your walls are really broken. They're so broken. I'm going to go back to Susan now. They're broken. He told them that the hand of his God was upon him to do good. I'm here to do good. Now, do you realize that this isn't just some like white picket fence project? Howard and I, we have this fence project for a friend of ours that we're going to stain his fence. It's literally taken us like six months. Six months to stain a fence. So bad. This is the wall of Jerusalem. Have any of you been here to this space? 
Roland nods his head, and I have a picture of him with us right here. It's coming. Have you seen some of these stones? Have you seen some of these stones? Now, the stone I'm going to share with you wasn't from this time. It was from Herod the Great's time. But I just wanted to bring out this stone because I just wanted you to get an idea of what it is. This stone on the western wall is 45 feet long, 12 feet high, 14 feet deep, weighing about 600 tons. That stone weighs the same amount as two 747s fully loaded. Passengers, luggage, everything. That's that stone. These guys don't have the technology that we have today to build that thing. How? And you can be sure that when Nehemiah shares this news, like, we're going to rebuild this wall, that these people that have been in derision for over 150 years are like, you're stupid. Like, are you kidding me? Ha! What? Who? How? Like, what are we going to do? How are we going to do that? And people doubted him. See, there will always be naysayers. Always. In the things that you want to do for the glory of God. Always. At this church, whenever there is an idea shared, always. There's never been a time where we haven't faced opposition. You're going to go to two services? Why? You're going to expand the children's ministry? You're going to invest how much into the local schools? You're going to hire on a new associate pastor? Why? Always. And it's not bad. It's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. Because it helps us to persevere. It helps us to build character. It helps us to hope. Romans chapter 5, verses 2-5. through five. Through Him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There are always people who oppose which we can use to our advantage because it helps us think through our convictions. It helps us think through our plans. It helps us to rejoice even when things aren't going so great and things don't look good at all. And it produces this endurance, this character, this hope. Hope is something we as a church can provide to those who don't have it. See, there are a lot of people in Oakland who have very little hope, just like those in Jerusalem back in that time very little hope. What do they need? The gospel of Jesus. They need to start rebuilding those walls in their life. Now let's look back at Nehemiah. He heard this bad news from his brother Hanani. So you start weeping and mourning and fasting and praying for months. One day the king notices that you're sad. You're scared for your very life because you don't know if this means that your life will end because the king doesn't like your attitude or not. But you find favor with him. He helps you get to this place in Jerusalem with everything you need. You get through this 800-mile journey. You get to Jerusalem. You survey the wall. And you realize that it's really, really, really bad. Susa doesn't look like a bad place anymore, does it? Susa actually looks like a good place. The king's winter getaway. Oh, man, I had some really good food there. And I had some really good drink. Everything was provided for. People weren't like being naysayers to me. Life was really nice. Life was really cushy. And now I'm in Jerusalem. This place stinks. Nothing here. No good food. No good drink. 
people saying bad things about me. All this stuff is just broken down and I think I need to rebuild it. Just a place of great trouble, a place of great shame. And if you put yourself in those shoes, what would you choose? What would you choose? What did Nehemiah choose? I'm going to stay and get to work. Why? Verse 18. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been put upon me for good. That's why. You're here in Oakland. Over 90% of you are not from here. Do you realize that the hand of God has been put upon you to do good? To do good. And many of us, we can go back to our nice cushy places. I remember my nice cushy place. It's a really nice place. But we don't. Because the hand of our God has been put upon us. This is how the gospel spread throughout the world. People recognizing that the hand of God had been put upon them for good. My paternal great-grandmother came to faith in Taishan, China by a white missionary. My father doesn't know where they were from, whether it was from the United States or Europe or anywhere. All he remembers as a child was that this guy is white, and they called him Bakui. This is Toisan, a dialect of Chinese. That's all that they knew him as, Bakui. Do you know what that means? Do you know what this means? It's messed up. It means white ghost, like Casper. <laughs> but this is just the Chinese culture. There's no filter. They just kind of say things the way they see them, right? So that you haven't seen someone for a few months, and like, hey, you got fat! smile on their face and everything and like a westerner a guy that was brought up here was like oh man fat anyways it's bakui in toisan and in bakwai in cantonese right and so many of you that go into chinatown you hear that bakwai bakwai that's they're talking about you okay <laughs> they're talking about you or sometimes they use this term guailo right sometimes they use that they're talking about you and that one is no better that means ghost person right so like this is a, no until recently, I've started hearing this other term, so bakyan, which is white person. I'm like, oh, they finally come into, I only heard this last month, though, so, you know, it's been a long time. But anyway, back to my great-grandmother's white ghost missionary. Thank God for him. Thank God that he recognized the hand of God that was upon him in Taishan, China, that it was for good that the gospel through my great-grandmother went all the way through and touched my dad and transformed my life. Thank God that that Bakui stayed in Taishan, China and ministered to the village there. He did good, and it changed my life. It changed four generations of my entire heritage. I look forward to meeting that guy one day and just saying thanks, you know, like, thanks. Thanks for sticking it out. Thanks for being there. I know it wasn't easy because those people aren't easy. But you don't know whom you're going to eternally affect by doing what God put in your heart to do. You fill in the blank for you fill in the blank. You have no idea. That guy has no idea. He has no idea what happened to me. You were placed in this world by God to do something, not looking for something to do. But to do something, what is it? What is it? You weren't brought here simply to point out all the problems of our church, of our city, of our community. You were brought here to do something. 
Do something. Nehemiah said, let us rise up and build. That is exactly right. Let's build and let's multiply. Do you see the favor that we've been given here? I mean, just like Nehemiah who pointed out that the king was behind him. Guys, we have favor here. I just want to bring up like a really, really cool story for you about our favor in, in the secular world. There was a location scout that came by for the band Blur. Do you know that British band Blur? They wanted to film a music video here in our facility. They wanted to film a music video. And you know how this happened? Because of this favor that we've been receiving from the community. Worldwide, really. Because of that silly parking lot. Do you know that the brown walls there, it's known as the Regeneration Brown Walls Worldwide. It is a famous street skating spot. I have met people from all over the world at that wall. South Africa, South Korea, Japan, Peru, everywhere. I've met people that come and they have this street skating map and they come and they skate on that park. I'm like, that's silly. That's so silly. Woo! Like, what's, what? You come all the way halfway across the world to go there? Like, are you serious? Cool. Levi's paid us a lot of money to use that parking lot to skate, to shoot their skating commercial because they have a new skating apparel line. For like two hours, they gave us thousands of dollars for like a two-hour shoot. It was awesome. <laughs> it was a great thing. We've just found incredible favor through a silly parking lot. We didn't even do anything. It was there already. It was vandalized by those skaters who poured the concrete to make it smooth and do all this other stuff, and we just let them do it. It wasn't even anything we did, and we have like this great relationship with our Lake Merritt Business Association. The administration has since changed from the mayor, but we had a great relationship with Gene Kwan and Pat Kernigan, our district council member. It's all changed. I have no doubt that we're going to rebuild those relationships with the new administration. Like We have this favor. Let's rise up and build. You already got the king's favor. That tough part's already done. What happened next? So they strengthened their hands for the good work. These guys got to work. Now what does this mean for us? Just practically speaking, we know we need to rise up and build. How do we strengthen our hands for the good work? Because every single one of you is needed for the good work. But what is that? Just here at our church, there's just so much that needs to be done. A ton. Just like when Nehemiah was rebuilding the wall. Not everyone was like a skilled laborer. Some people just wanted something to do and they had no idea what to do and even kids could get involved, but what would they have to do? They'd have to pick up the rubble. They just got to start cleaning things up around there and then getting it all cleaned up so that they can start working. It's the same thing for our church. We have a bunch of rubble, things that you can get into. I'll just bring up a couple of them. One of them is the children's ministry. They need more people to teach the kids about Jesus. The infant-toddler ministry. They can use people there so that the same people aren't serving there every week. There are people there that are there every week that they haven't been to church to worship and celebrate and be part of this in a long time. They could use that help. And if we paused and looked at the rubble that needs to be picked up at our church, you'd find it because there's a lot of brokenness all over. 
If you want to look at the brokenness in people's lives, all you got to do is go into a small group and you're going to be able to see it after a while, the brokenness in people's lives and how we need to strengthen everyone's hands for the good work. And once we set ourselves for good work, you can be sure that you're going to face opposition. Verse 19, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Whenever we go about God's work, guaranteed you're going to face opposition. It's guaranteed. Whenever you share the gospel, you share about Jesus, you do anything in Jesus' name, you'll face obstacles. Whatever, whenever you do something for God's glory, there will be resistance. Verse 20, Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we His servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Who does God use for His glory? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26-29 through For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We are simply God's servants. And Nehemiah tells these guys, you know, you have no portion, you have no right, you have no claim in Jerusalem. Now, for the others that were kind of doubting, because in the past 150 years, things have not been looking so good for them, what did Nehemiah do for them? He injected them with hope. They were used to living in derision, used to living in this funk. And here, Nehemiah just injects some hope into these people and says, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. And they're like, yeah, 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 we will. Yeah. Forget those guys, those Sanbala, Tobiah, Geshem, who were actually really influential people here during this time and probably just beating down these people all the time. You want to do what? Oh, you silly guys. Look at this has been like this for 150 years. I'm just going to have a picnic on your wall. Your wall does nothing. I can walk right over it. I, this, your wall is nothing. You're beaten. Forget it. Leave. 150 years later, somebody brings hope. Church, people will always oppose what we are doing. People will always oppose what the church is doing. And oftentimes it's people who have no portion or right or claim to it. Who was Nehemiah? Just a cupbearer. Now, this is really all of us, right? We are servants to the king. People who are not always the ones others would choose because we're not the wisest, we're not of noble birth, we're not of the most resources, we're whatever it may be, but we were chosen for God's glory. Chosen by God for his glory. People who are strengthened by God to do good work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray, Lord, that we would recognize your hand upon us as we serve this city, as we serve this community and the people of this church. God, thank you for how you've blessed us, that you've given us favor. And I pray, God, that you would help us to move forward in you, that we would not get ahead of ourselves, that we would be sensitive to your spirit's leading. In Jesus' name, amen.